Shall we just uh, bow our heads in prayer before we start? Loving Father, we thank you that we can uh, come again today as a church family to spend some time in your word. We thank you for your holy scriptures and that they are a lamp to our feet and a light into our path. I pray that I'll be faithful to your word and that through your spirit you would open our hearts to be challenged and to be encouraged this morning. Amen. The modern day exclamation mark is the mic drop. If you haven't heard about it, the mic drop phenomenon started about a decade ago, but it's only just now reached a peak in pop culture. What is it? The mic drop's a gesture used by public speakers, rappers and musicians to make it clear that the statement that they've just made is definitive, that the performance that they've done is punchy and it's authoritative. It's pretty simple really. All that happens is that after the speech or after the performance, the artist takes the microphone, they hold it out to the side and they drop it to the floor. They wait for the, for the noise to punch through the room and then they leave everyone standing there. The point is that whatever they've just said is definitive. There's nothing left to say. It's powerful and it's punchy and they don't need to stand there and they don't need to bathe in the applause of the audience. They've made their point. No one else can top them and now they're just standing there in silence after the bang is punched through the room and leaving the audience to absorb and reflect on the moment. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? These are the times that we live in. And to show you the height of the rise of the mic drop in pop culture, if you're not aware of it, it's how President Obama decided to finish his final ever address to the White House Correspondents' Dinner later last year. So dressed in a tuxedo and looking very presidential, he decided to conclude his seventh gala speech by saying... And with that, I've just got two more words. Obama out. And then he drops the mic. It doesn't matter how big you are in the world today, even if you're the President of the United States, the mic drop is the way to make your point at a show-stopping moment. Now, if ever a scene was set in the Gospel for a mic drop moment, then today's passage is it. We've got the people, we've got the preacher, and we've got the power statement. But before we get to the power statement, let's just, let's just jump back a little bit and let's look at the people and let's look at the preacher. Why was there such a crowd here today at the Mount? And what was the lead up to this definitive moment on the mountain? Well, at the end of Matthew chapter 4, just preceding today's passage, we learnt that Jesus went right throughout the country, proclaiming his Messiahship and proving his claims with miracles and signs and wonders, just as the Old Testament said that he would. Chapter 4 tells us that news had spread really far. It had gone as far as Syria. There were crowds from the Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem and Judea and the region across the Jordan. All of these people had come to follow him. I think sometimes we become so familiar with the stories that we read in the Bible and the the teachings of Jesus that that we just overlook these things and we, we overlook how much universal acclaim he had. Can you just imagine today what things would be like if a person as it says in chapter 4, began healing every sickness and every disease amongst the people. Imagine what CNN or Twitter or Facebook would be showing if today a person started making paraplegics walk, curing all the diseases, making all of the deaf people hear and all of the blind people see. The world would go absolutely manic for this person. And that was what was happening here. All bear in mind it was on a, on a smaller scale and there was no CNN and Facebook, but that was what was happening in Israel. There was an absolutely intense interest And so here we are today with this massive crowd of people that had followed Jesus. And just before we get to today's passage, Jesus had preached the famous Beatitudes. I'm sure most of us know them. I'll paraphrase a few. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now we're not going to look at these today, but the question that was on everybody's lips after this discourse was how does this new and this amazing kind of blessedness relate to the law of God? You see, everything that the Jew knew up until this point was that blessedness or blessings related to the law of God. If you want to look back in your own time, go and spend some time in Deuteronomy and look at the clear blessings for obedience to the law. If Israel wanted to be blessed, then they had to obey the law. But here, Jesus is saying what appears to be new things. He's saying that this blessedness can come from other things or appears to come from other things that don't appear to be directly related to the Mosaic law. And so the question that was on everybody's, or was everyone's heads, the question that all of the people in the crowd had was what about the law? If this Jesus is the Messiah and if he came from God, then what about the law? Because the law had come from God too, hadn't it? So how does what Jesus has just been saying fit with God's mosaic system which had been operating in Israel essentially as their constitution for over 1400 years. So that's the background and it's here that Christ picks up today's passage and today I just want to break it down into, into two main sections. So in the first section he starts by saying those famous words which provide his answer, his clear answer to the question that they had about the law. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them but to fulfil them. Now the two operative words here are abolish and fulfil. And it's worth just firstly noting that, that the word abolish in the original Greek, it's a little bit different to our English. It actually means to loosen down or to unbridle or to unyoke. So it doesn't mean to completely get rid of or obliterate like the way we might think of it. But rather what Christ is saying is he didn't come to loosen the law down or to unbridle it, but he's actually trying to do the complete opposite. Instead he's trying to fulfil it in its entirety. Now the concept of Christ fulfilling the law is something I think that's helpful for us just to get our heads around. So we can't get the answers from the passage that we've got here today because the topic's obviously immense. But luckily from our position of having the whole of scripture available to us, we can begin to grasp some of the immensity of the claim that he says. So when the Lord says that he fulfills the law and the prophets, he means to give them fullness, to completely fill them out and to complete them. So I want to look briefly just at three extensions of this this morning. So firstly, in its most basic sense, Christ was perfect in achieving the practical outworkings of the law. He kept all 613 of the Mosaic rules that applied to him. And so therefore, in its, in its simplest sense, he was pretty much the definition of success or the definition of righteousness from the way that the Pharisees defined success. He was what the Pharisees desperately wanted to be. But then secondly, following on from this, he also kept the law in a much more perfect and a much more holistic way than the Pharisees had ever considered. Later on in, in, uh, in the book of Matthew, he goes on to, to show and to develop the surpassing righteousness or the greater righteousness that a perfect and a holy God really requires, far more above the superficial level that sometimes we see and that the Pharisees saw. A classic example that, that most of us know if you, if you just move forward into the Sermon on the Mount our God doesn't require us just not to physically murder anyone, as, as the, uh, the Ten Commandments say, but he requires us to be pure of heart with respect to violence and hate. Remember, he says, we're even thinking of harming a brother or sister is considered murder under this deeper spiritual understanding of the law. 
So there's this whole new uh, sort of level to the law and he brings it out to its fullest power and the full extent of honouring God. And so Christ is claiming that he doesn't just fulfil out those basic practical outworkings that we might see but also every facet of this much deeper and this much, much more perfect uh, expansion and expression of the law. And then thirdly and finally, expanding on this even more, he says that he fulfils the law and the prophets. And it's this term, the prophets, that shows us that he is the answer and he's the total working out of God's grand redemptive plan here on earth. Not only does he fulfil the law, but he fulfils every prophecy and every promise throughout the ages about Messiah, who he was to be, how he would act and what he would bring about. Luke 24 summarises this perfectly. It says, And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, Jesus has interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. So in its simplest form, this little verse in Matthew chapter 5 is saying that Jesus is the very fulfilment of God's earthly and his spiritual plan. So just recapping this first section, we can see that in expanding form he fulfilled the basic requirements of the law, but then he went on to fulfil the debts and the surpassing righteousness that's demanded by a truly perfect and a truly holy God. And then, finally, he's actually the answer and he's the manifestation and the total working out of God's grand redemptive plan by fulfilling every single aspect of the legal system and God's prophetic plan. So hopefully this cements the fact that as people might have thought, he certainly didn't come to abolish the law or even to loosen it down, but in fact he's come to fulfil it and to fill it out and to complete it in a sense that's that's almost impossible for us to grasp and certainly uh, far beyond what the people's expectations were there when he was at the mountain. So moving into the second section today, the Lord builds to a crescendo his high and his important view of the law. He says, I tell you the truth, that until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's previously said, we just looked at that he'd come not to abolish the law, but in fact to fulfil it. And now he's saying that the law is so important that not even a single stroke of a pen will disappear from it until God's whole plan is completed. Well, that's probably pretty good news for the Jews, isn't it? The crowd that was sitting there wondering exactly where did he sit on the issue? Well, he's made it pretty uh, pretty clear. He's still a Jew. He's still clearly in line with their thinking. He's still pulling the party line. But then comes that finale, doesn't it? that anyone who breaks even the smallest commandment will be called least in the kingdom, and that unless their righteousness and their good lives are better than the most upheld people, the most moral people in society, then they will certainly not enter the kingdom. That's the mic drop, isn't it? That's an authoritative, that is a power statement. I'm pretty sure the crowd's gone quiet. This is a definitive moment. Can you feel the silence? Can you feel the lump in the throats of the crowd when they hear that? In the second section today, I just want to touch on two issues. We'll just just, uh, delve back into that. We're going to have to move outside this passage to start to fill in some of the gaps. 
So obviously the passage that we've got here in our Lord's startling statement is purposely being left without an immediate answer to the chapter. We've, we've been left with the mic drop moment. So our job here today is to both expound the text that we've got but also from the truths that we know from the rest of Scripture. And hopefully this will not only cement the seriousness of his words and prove that this really was worthy of a mic drop moment, if they had a microphone there, uh, but also to give us some of the answers that the crowd and, and maybe ourselves are left contemplating. So two points. Point one, God demands righteousness and he insists on this in his people. He says it here that anyone who breaks even one of the smallest of the commandments will be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. If we jump back into the Old Testament to the giving of the law, Moses says to his people in Deuteronomy, Be silent, O Israel, and listen. You have now become the people of the Lord your God. Obey the Lord your God and follow his commands and decrees that I give you today. Cursed is the man who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. Can we see that? Obey, the, obey God and his law and his commandments and cursed is the man who does not uphold the words of the law. That's from the Old Testament. If we jump forward into the New, in fact later on in this very book, Jesus says, be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. How can we be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect? In Hebrews we're told, without holiness no man shall ever see the Lord. How can we be holy so that we can see the Lord? Jesus clearly reiterates, he makes it clear that righteousness and perfection are essential for God's people. And he drives it home, doesn't he, by giving them the massively real and the frightening analogy that unless their righteousness exceeds the very, the most moral and the most upright people, essentially an impossibility as far as they were concerned, then they would never enter the kingdom. So point number one, God demands righteousness. Point number two, the righteous requirements of the law or the total sum of the requirements of the law will not pass away until the very end of God's plan. Not the smallest letter, even the least stroke of a pen will pass away. So what Jesus is saying is that the, the perfection that the law demands and it leads to, the perfection that it, that it demands is still required. The expectations or the requirements of God haven't changed and hence the law hasn't passed away in that sense. And that's kind of what we'd expect from God, isn't it? Luckily, we know that he is a God that is unchanging. For I am the Lord and I change not, is what he tells us. And so if God can't change, then how could his requirements change? Today's passage says that the law and the righteousness that the fullness of the law points to will remain until heaven and earth disappear and until everything is accomplished. So that's pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? Justification for a mic drop moment? Probably some stunned silence from the crowd? I think so. And it leaves us with the obvious question that hopefully is you know, pricking us a little bit by now. If God requires perfect righteousness and if the righteousness that he requires until the very end of times is summarised by complete obedience to the law, then what are we going to do? I'll say it again because it's a massive question. If God requires perfect righteousness, like we saw in point one, and then if the righteousness that he requires, or what that looks like, is summarised by complete obedience to the law, as we saw in point two, then what are we going to do? Well, luckily, there's a great truth 
hasn't come out yet. Christ stops the specific focus of his message here at the mic drop moment in Matthew. He leaves the crowd in awe and he leaves them with the impossible standard that he set. But he knows that there is an answer. And the answer to the problem is the change in mindset and understanding from human righteousness on one side to divine righteousness on the other. It's the change in mindset from trying to obtain righteousness through our own lives, like the way that the Pharisees naturally tended to think, to being granted divine righteousness. Now it falls outside this passage, but I think we'll just uh, have a look outside it briefly because it helps us to understand the solution to the problem that Jesus had left the crowd with. In the book of Romans, Paul begins to explain the new revelation or this new truth, which until this time had not been fully revealed. Paul explains in Romans chapter 3, he says, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. And this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. I'll just say it again because it's a a great verse. Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. And this righteousness is given through the faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Paul's saying that Christ didn't just come to pardon us from sin. But it also, or his death also puts us in a right position with God by imputing to us or crediting our accounts with righteousness. It's not actually just as simple for us to be sinners that are forgiven. Because remember, God doesn't demand just repentance and forgiveness. We saw earlier, he demands righteousness and perfection. So Paul's saying that in addition to being forgiven, Christ's death also covers us and it makes us righteous. It puts us in a right position with God. God doesn't look on us just as pardoned sinners. He looks on us as purely righteous, robed in the righteousness of Christ, a term we might have heard. And so in the same way that Christ was able to, sorry, God was able to impute or to credit or to put all of our sin and all of our unrighteousness on his son at Calvary, in the same way that he was made sin for us, God was also able to do the complete reverse. He was able to impute all of the son's righteousness onto us so that we are completely identified with him. Paul says to the Corinthians that we are made the righteousness of God. Can you see that amazing contrast? He was made sin for us and as a result we are made the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians nails this in a a nice neat verse. If you ever want another memory verse to, to remember this is the one. For our sake God made him who had no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So going back to that hard and that gnarly question that we raised before, how is it that we can achieve 100% of the righteous requirements of the law, which our passage today said is essential until the end of times? Well, the mind-blowing answer is believe that Christ is Lord. Believe in his death and his resurrection, and we are made the righteousness of God. This is the great transition from human righteousness, which Jesus was shocking the crowds with at the mountain, to this divine righteousness, which is freely offered to all of us, and it's the answer to that big problem, the lump in the throat, so the crowd was left with. Paul emphasises this amazing revelation with that famous statement, many of us know it. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Given the shock that the crowd on the mount were left with, which is hopefully a little bit what we were left with as well, 
and then this amazing answer that we've just seen, the amazing answer to those impossible standards. Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul is not ashamed? Are we not ashamed? Are we filled with awe? Are we filled with wonder? Are we filled with thankfulness about the fact that we totally unrighteous people have become the righteousness of God? We should never sell ourselves short. We should never think of ourselves just as forgiven sinners. We are so much more than that, thanks to Christ. We are the righteousness of God. Do you sometimes feel guilty about your Christian walk? Like you never feel like you stack up? Do you feel like me sometimes when you're sitting in church and you're looking around at everybody and you start to shrink back in your seat because you don't really feel that authentic and you don't really feel good enough? We're probably never going to get rid of that feeling. It's, it's just part of our journey through life. But we always need to remember that what God sees is perfection. Don't ever worry or don't ever stress about what God sees because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's what he sees. So as I finish today, I just want to make a couple of observations that I I hope are helpful in the context of the passage this morning. It was never God's intention that the Hebrew people should mistakenly think that their, their righteousness should come as a result of keeping the law of Moses. We know that from Scripture, Noah and Abraham, you know, very important people, who lived well before the giving of the law, were declared righteous men in God's eyes. Not because they adhered to the law, because it wasn't even there, but because of grace. They had faith in the Lord and through his grace he credited to them righteousness. But in our Lord's time, here in the passage today, the leaders of Israel had neglected this unchanging principle of grace and they'd replaced it with this burdensome principle of obedience to the law. And it was against this serious error that in this morning's text our Lord began to challenge and he began to rectify this mistake. And the challenge is picked up later on as well. The Apostle Paul continues uh, later in his uh, letter to the Romans. He says about the Hebrew people, To them I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. It was this serious mistake of trying to establish their own righteousness, which is the focus of our Lord's challenge to the crowd. And the Sermon on the Mount is, amongst a whole bunch of other things, a direct challenge to what had become institutionalised false thinking in Israel. But for us here today, it would be pretty easy to say that this is just an issue of the past, isn't it? We don't have this institutionalised false thinking. The human righteousness that the Pharisees were demanding isn't really important to me because I know that I'm covered by Christ's death. The law and the prophets, they're not important to me. I know that all, all of these requirements are covered by God's divine righteousness. So I don't really need to spend any time back there in the Old Testament or even really listening to some of the hard teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. But here's my challenge. By spending time in the Old Testament and understanding the depths of the law and then seeing how every aspect of the law and the prophets all pointed towards Christ, we can grow in our appreciation for two really important issues that face us at the present time. So firstly, as believers, we're faced with the pretty obvious question, how are we supposed to live in today's world? How should we conduct ourselves? We know that we're no longer condemned by the law, we know that we're no longer under the law, but we also know that Christ uh, calls us to be holy people and followers of him. We don't have a dogmatic or a prescriptive rule book that we can work through and we can tick the boxes. Our life, it's all full of grey, isn't it? 
There's a myriad of complications. Individually, we've all got our own problems and our our own issues that we're all trying to battle with. And there's not a rule book. But if we want to gain a greater appreciation for what God has called us to be, then spend some time in the Old Testament and spend some time listening or or reading Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount because this shows us the character and the holiness of God that we're called to love and that we're called to follow and that we're called to emulate. And then secondly, and especially I think in our current times, we're bombarded with taglines about the cruelty and the stupidity of God and his supposed plans. One of the uh, new atheists' biggest arguments these days is that God has to be a very cruel and a very foolish being to come up with a redemptive plan as stupid as having to send his son to die. The famous atheist Christopher Hitchens says that it's ridiculous that after a few thousand years of watching the world suffer as it does, God then decides to intervene by sending a person to an obscure part of the Middle East to be tortured on a cross. That ought to cure it, is what he cynically says. But we have a reliable advantage over Mr Hitchens. We have a revelation, a heavenly revelation, both in the written word and in the living word that we've seen here today. And the more we read the Old Testament, and indeed the Sermon on the Mount, the more we understand the magnitude of the righteousness that God requires. And the more we see this, the more we realise that the barrier for us is just insurmountable. When we hear Jesus' demands today that our righteousness has to be so exemplar that it's equivalent to not even breaking a single law, that drives us to complete hopelessness, doesn't it? What are we going to do? And that was the very point of his mic drop moment here at the Mount. It becomes pretty obvious to us that unless there's some other solution, a solution where somehow we don't earn it, but it's bestowed upon us, then without that we're completely lost. And so that's my challenge. Don't forget about the law. Don't pass over these sections of scripture because they reveal not only the immensity of God's requirements, the immensity of what he demands, but also at the same time the immensity of what he has freely clothed us in. This passage in Matthew forms this brilliant pivot point where we can look back from here, back into the Old Testament, and we can gain a greater understanding of what a truly righteous God is. But then from there we can also look forward to see what he's done for us and why his death for us isn't foolishness or it isn't ridiculous like Hitchin says, but it's actually the only possible solution. The better we grasp these issues, then the more people like Hitchin's arguments fall apart and they just become the musings of mere men. In my opinion, this passage is without a doubt worthy of a mic drop moment. The last time we saw a scene similar like this, it was Moses who was at the base of the mountain giving the law of God to a crowd of people for the first time. But this time, it's the word of God himself, the one who's greater than Moses, not giving the law, but confirming and fulfilling the very law that he himself wrote on those tablets a thousand years ago. And finally, he leaves the crowd with a powerful and a striking mic drop moment. That the righteous requirements that the law demands remain, And that unless we fulfil this degree of righteousness, then we will surely not enter the kingdom of heaven. But the great news is, though, the news that we've seen is that there's an encore to this message, isn't there? And the encore, or the message that's presented in that encore, is the greatest message that we will ever hear. That even now, sitting here, we all have fulfilled those requirements. Because through Christ, we sinners have been made the righteousness of God. Let's pray.
Loving Father, we thank you so much for the hope that Jesus our Lord gives us. We thank you that we have not only been forgiven, but that through your great love we have been made perfect. And we pray that you would continue to work through our lives, that we will continue to learn and appreciate the surpassing righteousness of the Lord God Almighty and that we become ever more thankful and filled with praise with what you have freely given us. Amen.